All right, we'll, we'll read uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, evil they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourself, yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You may be seated. When I preached here at Weavertown the last little while, I've been preaching um, using a text from the books of First Peter, and uh, I'm working my way through that sort of on a verse-by-verse basis. And today we find ourselves at First Peter chapter 2, verse uh, 13, and as part of the last sermon, um, I finished there in verses 11 and 12. I know it's a couple of weeks since uh, that took place. Today I'd like to uh, uh, enter into this next section in the book of 1 Peter, which uh, brings the topic of submission into the picture. So in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, uh, there is some very deep theological uh, ground that Peter covers and talks about our position in Christ and the work that Christ has done for us and how that impacts us in our life today. Um, he's, in chapter 2, he then starts to get more practical and talk about how that position causes us to, to live and to actually to, um, conduct our lives. So um, in this uh, next uh, couple of sermons. I was hoping earlier to maybe do it in, uh, um, yeah, to just take bigger chunks at a time, but I find that the book of 1 Peter is so rich and full, and there's so much to, uh, that comes to my mind as I study and prepare. I, I think I'm probably going to do it in at least three sermons, but uh, there's four sections, I'm sorry, five sections, uh, typo there, five sections on submission in the next uh, section here that we're entering in as we get to verse 13 and following of chapter 2. So today we're going to talk about submission to government, and that um, really breaks in there at verse 13 and goes to verse 17. And then he talks about submission in the workplace, which is uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. And then uh, in the middle of that section, which I think is very profound and beautiful, there is a, some very incredible teaching on how Christ submitted. That's the third section, uh, chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. And then he talks about sub- submission in a, in a home or in a family, specifically in a marriage, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And then he wraps up the section on submission in verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3, where he talks about submission in the brotherhood. I am not uh, wanting or even trying to say all that there is to say on this subject. And uh, I guess uh, you are here in the pews today, so uh, you get to hear the sermon. If you're listening at home and you find yourself disagreeing, you can reach over and turn your device off. Um, But I I do uh, want to be accountable as I preach here today, and uh, I'm just going to say at the beginning here, probably 90% of you already have thought about COVID. Um, I thought about that too, and um, I'm sure that there is uh, lots that can be learned and said and taught, and I want to be generous and kind, and uh, I want to um, preach and teach in a way that draws people to the scriptures and not to me as an individual. (laughs) 
The doctrine of submission, the teaching of submission, is a doctrine that Peter addresses, and that's what we have here before us today. Nobody, nobody naturally submits. Nobody, not one of us. The desire not to submit is just as strong as, it's as, it's, it's as clear a human trait as breathing. And you're sitting here today, uh, you have been breathing. You, you, you were and didn't even think about it. And that's how it is with this subject of submission. We are naturally inclined to appreciate, to like our right to choose. We like to self-determine our future. We find ourselves uh, pushing against those freedoms um, being taken away from us. And that may be especially true when it's uh, government or tyrannical government, I should add. And um, I think that all of these things that I said are maybe especially true for us as Americans. <clears throat> maybe even especially true for us who live in Lancaster County. The, the fact is, that's how we started as a nation. That's how America was founded on some of these, these specific things that I've just said. We want our freedom. We appreciate our freedom. We don't want government telling us how to live. And so it's a very fine line, and Peter addresses that, and I'm going to point that out as I go. Resisting authority and finding it difficult to submit is just a natural thing that we all face. The prophet Isaiah talks about that in chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, he says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned our backs. We've all walked away. We've all done our own thing. We've all gone our own way. It's human nature. But when there is no submission in relationships, there is also usually a lack of security and safety. And I would add, probably in most cases, there is a lack of protection. So there's this clear theme that Peter is working on in chapter 2, and I've pointed that out to you on this uh, slide here on the, uh, on the, in the PowerPoint. The theme of submission. He, he brings in verse 13, you notice, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And... Uh, the section actually goes back to verse 12, which we covered somewhat in our last sermon. Having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that's a word I want to talk about a little later, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. <clears throat> Having your conduct honest which is a form of the word honorable. It's a euphemism that he talks about here where he says the Gentiles. And he's talking about people who are not believers. And he says that our conduct, our lifestyle needs to be honorable or honest among unbelievers. That they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I think that the day of visitation there is talking mostly about future. I'm sure it applies to more than that. But sometimes I think we have also uh, mistaken that to, to the point where, especially in our culture, we want people to think well of us today. Um, I think that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But in this context, it talks about glorifying God in the day, of, the day that God visits us. And that phrase, the day of visitation, I think, specifically talks about the future, although I'm sure it, it applies to current. Most of our Anabaptist and Ameri uh, most of our Christian history, most of the history of the church, this could not ever have been said. We were never well or often not well liked, usually not well liked. In many places in the world today, that's exactly how it is. Christians are not well liked. And I think we are finding ourselves at a time and a place where it is increasingly that way here in America. 
more and more you see Christians being sort of the curd in the cheese. We don't fit. We're seen as a threat to what is the talk of the day. We present more and more difficulty. And I think it's something that we should be aware of. I don't think that we should necessarily resent that. I don't think that we should live our lives differently as a result of that necessarily. But it's just something that we should be aware of. So we have these five sections on submission. Today, we're going to talk specifically about submission to government. Most of the sermon, I'd like to address these four points in relation to submission to government. We're going to talk about the principle of submission, the particulars of submission, the purpose of submission, and the practice of submission. And I'm going to kind of move through those without necessarily calling attention always to to the transition. First of all, the principle of submission in verse 13. The principle of submission... The Greek word here is hupotassel, or something like that. And it shows up numerous times in the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. And most times when you have the word subject, or you have the word submission in its various forms, it is this word, this Greek word, hupotassel. And I've mentioned it numerous times that the Greek speaks in word pictures. And the word picture here is that of something orderly. And it, is, was, it was and is used in, uh, to, as a word picture for the military, um, a military term. Although in this case, it's not in that form. It, it is in some other places, and it is, uh, that's the word picture of having things in an orderly fashion. Voluntary cooperation. The practice of submission. therefore submit is the thought verse 12 having our conversation honest that they may glorify God and he says therefore submit yourself or the implication is submit yourselves because of that the continuation of the previous thought and I like, especially, we'll talk about this at a later time, how he talks about Jesus' submission to government. Um, Yeah, I think it's just important for us, before we get all itchy and riled up about being model citizens, I think it's important for us to uh, think about the New Testament culture that they lived in, the time that this was written was probably in in the mid to late 60s A.D. Um, Peter was writing. And, uh, yeah, I want to just point that out, the kind of culture that they were living in. The, The Roman culture that they were living in was incredibly corrupt, unbelievably corrupt. There was, and that's true for most of the New Testament uh, culture. Most of the time of the New Testament, they lived in this, in this era of incredible corruption of the Caesars, the Roman Caesars. And it was not a democracy. It was an autocracy. That means that there was one person or one system that called the shots. You did not get to vote. You did not get to um, elect leaders. They were filled with tyrants. I would add my own word there, they were despots. They were unbelievably wicked, they were cruel, and they did not uh, appreciate or respect Christianity. There was no free speech. The king, the Caesar, at the time that Peter is writing this, was Caesar Nero. And I think those of you who have uh, any kind of appreciation of history could probably repeat some of the stories of Nero, he was maybe perhaps the most wicked and cruel and vile and unbelievably, um, uh, yeah, cruel, creatively cruel, I would add. <clears throat> and one of the things that was going on at this time was they had their festivals. And at least once or twice a year, all the, 
all the citizens, or everybody in, in the Roman Empire, was required to show up at one of these festivals, and as part of this festivals, part of this festival, they would dip their finger, their fingers into oil, like incense of some kind, and they would spritz the incense into a fire, and as they did so, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And pretty much uh, the Caesars were secular enough to realize that there was, uh, I think they sort of believed in multiple gods, but they wanted you, you were required to do this. To, and I should back up just a little bit here. The Caesars not only were corrupt, they put themselves in the position of deity. So they deified themselves. They believed that they were in a position uh, of God. They, they lifted themselves up to that, um, that level. So at these festivals, you were required to spritz incense into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And when you did that, you got a little certificate. It was called a libelous. And that certified that they had worshipped Caesar in the recent past. But they could go from that place and live pretty much however they wanted, including the Christians. You could do, live your life pretty much however you wanted in Rome, as long as you had that certificate, as long as you did that little nonsensical ritual. But the Christians didn't do that. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they refused to do that little ritual. And because of that, they suffered terribly because of it. Another part of the culture was the idea of slavery. And it has created um, a topic of discussion for many decades, many centuries, that the Bible culture is written in, the New Testament culture is written in the context of slaves. And I am not in any way sympathetic to it. It is wrong. Slavery is, 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 is a distortion of the way God created humans. But the writers of the New Testament wrote the New Testament with the knowledge that there was slavery. In fact, it is my personal opinion that the church age started to attack this thought of slavery. And I think that the church, the Christians, speaking out against slavery, little by little eroded slavery. And all, all, if you look at the, even in modern times, recent history where slavery was present, it was usually Christians or God-fearing people that spoke out against slavery. And as a result, slavery was eroded. Into the fourth century, there was almost no slavery present. And here we are in close to the end of the first century. But the New Testament writers wrote about slavery, and not because they endorsed it, I don't think, but because it was a fact. It was something that was there. It was part of their culture. And so, in the Roman Empire, for example, one writer suggests that there were three slaves for every one free person. That's mind-boggling. So, there were tradesmen and people throughout the Roman Empire that were owned by elites. So you have that dynamic going on uh, along with everything else. And then there were taxes. And the taxes, if you think that our taxes are bad, their taxes were even more oppressive, more crushing. And there was a lot of injustice going on in relation to slavery and taxation. And just the, the, the world culture at that time, was it was, a, it was not in many ways a comfortable place to live like our frame of reference here in America. <clears throat> I want to call attention to Jesus' subjection to government because we're on this subject. And we'll address this a little bit more once we get to that uh, third section that I highlighted earlier. So when Jesus came into the world, 
Many Jewish people, including his disciples, thought that Jesus would lead a revolt from the oppression and bring things back into a more desirable place. But Jesus didn't do that. He never did that. He never, had, he never picketed. He never told his followers how to vote. He never encouraged his followers to revolt or to not pay their taxes. He never started an insurrection. In fact, he confronted people who suggested that they do that. He never started a cultural war at all. <clears throat> and we know that Jesus subjected himself to the unfair treatment of Pilate and gave his life, was crucified as a result of complete injust and false accusations. So what is a Christian to do in the midst of corruption and cultural problems? When we find ourselves in the presence of ungodly government, what is a Christian to do? That's what Peter's talking about. That's what he's addressing. So the principle is submit yourself to every ordinance of man, whether it's to the king, that was Nero, Caesar Nero, or the governors. And Rome at that time was divided into 28 districts, and all of those districts had governors. Luke talks about some of those governors. Pilate was the governor of Jerusalem and its surrounding area during the time of Jesus' life. So there were 28 governors, and they were under Caesar in rank, and Caesar, of course, thought he was number one. I don't think he recognized God as his authority. Uh, in fact, he thought he was God. And we're instructed here in Scripture to submit to governors and to kings. We have the same teaching in Romans chapter 13. Uh, Paul is the writer there. So what does it mean to submit? At this point, I want to ask a question. And that is, are submission and obedience synonymous? Is submission and obedience the same thing? Now, when looking at the word obedience, I don't think there's much need for definition on this particular point. Students, children, employees, officers, basically any person understands what obedience is. It means following orders. It means following instructions, doing what you're told. And that can be done without any sentiment. You can be inwardly rebelling, but outwardly you can obey. You can follow the, the rule. A person, when a person obeys a rule, it is not necessarily dependent on that, per, that person's will. <clears throat> Often, it's because the individual has little or not much choice to do otherwise. Submission, on the other hand, is when a person gives into the authority or the greater power. <clears throat> Unlike obedience, submission is much more inward, where it is done willfully, or it is done out of respect for the person in authority, or the, the chain of command, the recognition of the chain of command. In obedience, there can be little sentiment involved you can be merely doing what you're what, uh, following orders. <clears throat> Later on in this subject of submission, Peter talks about submission in the home or specifically in a marriage. And he gives some specific instructions about 
how submission is done. And he uses words, or I'm using some of my own terms, but some of these terms are actually in the text here in verses in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, where it talks about submission in the context of marriage, and he uses words like honor or understanding. It's given in the context of relationship, awareness, communication, discussion. And I think that's instructive for, for the rest of the subject of, of submission. Let me give you just an, a, a little bit of a personal example here. Uh, three, in 2018, 2019, actually before that, almost two years prior to that, we were house building. And those of you who are locals uh, are familiar with some of our townships and the way we do things here in, in this part of Pennsylvania. So it was about a two-year process until we ever broke ground. And basically it was a journey for me to <clears throat> understand the zoning ordinances of Upper Laycock Township. <clears throat> so those ordinances are available online, and I could find them um, relatively easy. I familiarized myself with what was expected in relation to, to um, the project that we were doing. And if I had trouble understanding it, I had some professionals that I could call. And in one or two times, I even spoke to the supervisors at the Upper Laycock Township. It was enlightening to me to discover that there was a, relative, a very big difference between what was expected and what was written. And um, as we went along the, um, the process, I found it interesting that as I communicated with the inspectors, who are the ones who carry out the as-built plan, and if I had questions about how it should be done, I could talk to the inspector, and I learned to know these guys, and uh, um, they were relatively nice to work with and communicated relatively well how things were expect or how they expected what they were looking for. And in some cases, it was, it was not at all like the zoning ordinances said. I think you could say that I submitted to the ordinances, or to the inspectors. I submitted to what was expected, but I did not obey the zoning ordinances. Submission is the willingness to also bear the consequences when apprehended. For example, if you are ticketed for speeding, I remember twice, I think, being ticketed for speeding, and neither of those times did I resist the officer who stopped me. I did not drive faster. I did not try to escape him. When he came to my window, I was um, polite and handed him my registration and license. And when he came back with the ticket, I, uh, I talked with him, and I did not yeah, try to resist him. I did not take the ticket and plead not guilty. I did not try to convince him or the court that I was not speeding. I did not take the officer to court. I did not challenge the speeding, the, the limit or in any way. I submitted and paid the fine. And I did it, if I remember correctly, within a day or two after I'd gotten the ticket. I accepted the consequences of not obeying. I submitted to the ticket. And I think that, I think that submission and obedience are not always synonymous. <clears throat> so I'm gonna push just a little bit further <clears throat> in this, this thought. And give you some biblical examples. Are there times, is there a time where Christians should not obey? Is there a place where Christians should defy what is asked or the rule of law? Yes, there is. There are times where Christians should not obey. 
I think in general, though, we should be model citizens. I think we should obey until our obedience causes us to disobey God. And I think there are few times, overall, in a, in, in a person's life, there are probably relatively few issues that will require us to disobey. And when that happens, I think a different set of rules come into play. So there's biblical examples. One example is in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Pharaoh, who was kind of similar to the Caesars, was threatened by the children of Israel, and he said, he instructed the midwives to, well, he was concerned about the overpopulation of the Hebrews, and he said, he told the, the midwives that when baby boys are born to the midwives or to the Hebrews, they should kill them. And in chapter 1 of Exodus, it tells us that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. Flat disobedience. Later on, and I'm just picking out some of these stories. I picked out the ones that I thought would probably be familiar, familiar to you all. There was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was a ruler in the Babylonian Empire, and he was a guy a lot like the pharaohs and a, a lot like the Caesars. He thought that he was in the place of God. And when Daniel and his buddies, the captives from Jerusalem, came in chapter 1, he had them eat certain foods that were in opposition to the diets that were required by Jewish people. And they refused to do it. Later on, when Nebuchadnezzar built a huge image to himself, and he required everybody to show up for this festival, and at a certain time they were to all bow and worship this golden image, and he told them out ahead of time what the consequences would be to anybody that didn't do that. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobeyed. But they submitted to the consequences. Another example, a little later on in the book of Daniel, King Darius, who was now a transition of power, the Babylonian Empire had gone, and here was the, the Medes and the Persians. And Darius was one of the leaders. And again, he was a lot like these guys. He was a lot like Pharaoh, a lot like Caesar, a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was in the place of God. And the people around him sort of did too. Except Daniel. And King Darius made a temporary mandate that for 30 days nobody could worship any deity other than the king, Darius. What did Daniel do? The Bible says in Daniel chapter 6 that he went to his house and he opened his windows and he prayed three times that day just like he had always done. Did he have to do that? Did he have to open his windows? Could he have not prayed for 30 days? Could he have just gone to his house and not prayed at all? Daniel disobeyed, but he submitted to the consequences. He spent a night in the lion's den. In the New Testament, Peter, who is the writer of this book, and others in the book of Acts, spent most of their adult lives scooting around the authorities of that time, trying to avoid them. The Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities who wanted to oppress them and say, you mayn't preach. You mayn't go into the temple. We don't want you in there talking to the people. You mayn't use the name of Jesus. You mayn't preach the gospel. And they disobeyed. They did anyway. but they submitted to the consequences. I want to give you a story from modern history. I'm going to have to go pretty fast here. So in the early part of the 20th century, Europe was in upheaval. The first 50 years, oh, it was terrible. Uh, yeah, 
countries were changing their names and land boundaries, national borders were changing every several years. And our Anabaptist cousins, I'm going to call them, people who did not immigrate to the United States like our ancestors did, uh, had a time of it. And the Mennonite group in, uh, in Germany at that time, well, let me, let me just say, it, after World War I, there were some, some very strong restrictions placed on Germany by the world. Some of them were oppressive and mean. They were not nice. And Germany was in an incredible upheaval at that time because they had just come through the war and they were recovering from that. And along with that, the Germans that had been set up to lead were unbelievably corrupt. There was so much corruption going on, you, couldn't, you can't hardly believe it. And the Nazi regime came into power at that time in the early 30s. And Adolf Hitler and his party confronted this injustice that the world had placed on Europe, on Germany specifically. But as they progressed and as they got further and further along, Adolf Hitler passed all kinds of crazy mandates. We, we're sort of familiar with the story. It's not that long ago. Some of you older people remember this. It was law. Some Christians defied it. And we have stories among us like Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who defied those laws. They didn't follow the mandates. But there was Mennonites in Germany. There was tens of thousands of Mennonites in Germany at that time. And they had come through, their history was, okay, sort of, they were similar to our history, except they didn't immigrate to the United States. They stayed in Europe. And because of the wars and because of the unrest and the unpeaceful conditions, they moved to, to Prussia, which later became Ukraine and Russia, and then they, because there was the Bolshevik re revolution there, they moved back to Germany and Danzig. And these, these cousins of ours, our Anabaptist friends or Mennonites, were sick and tired of moving from one place to the other. I mean, I'm, I'm talking in a period of 30 or 40 years. That's the memory of most, a lot of us here today. They were chased around. They were tired of being chased around. And so after World War I, like I said, there was a lot of difficulty, but when the Nazis came into power, the Mennonites found themselves sort of sympathizing with some of the injustices or with the, the, um, the reparations and things that were coming their way. To, to, and they, they also, um, not to their credit, they were sort of sympathetic to, to some of the things that, that Hitler and his uh, regime brought into the picture. One of the things that Hitler brought into the picture was peace. He said there's going to be a 100-year reign. And that was attractive to them. And their intense desire for peaceful coexistence with the government caused them to at least initially obey the Nazi mandates. And it's really unflattering, really unflattering for them. They had migrated to Danzig in Germany and they were sick of political unrest. And so they followed the mandates, and they followed the mandates, and they followed the mandates. But that obedience and that compliance by the Menos of that time caused them to progress really far in cooperation with the Nazi story, so far that the Mennonites were still in cooperation with the Nazi regime into the 40s. It's sad. One of the things that they sympathized with the Nazis was on anti-Semitism. And at some point, let me, let me just say, they should have disobeyed the Nazi mandates. I think they should have disobeyed them. At some point, very far into the story, they started to become aware or their eyes were opened, and at least many of the Mennonites 
And I should also add, not, not all of the Mennonites submitted to the Nazi regimes. There were some who didn't, but many did. And eventually, when their eyes were opened, it, it was a difficult time. And the story is still being uncovered. And it, it's a sad story. It's a recent story. I think, I think that we are increasingly going to become confronted with these same kinds of things. I'm concerned when I read some of the Beachy and Mennonite blogs who are, for example, sympathetic to the LGBTQ crowd. I find myself concerned when I hear viewpoints that are expressed that are sympathetic to forms of abortion, for example, or same-sex marriage. I just think we need to be super aware. <laughs> Back to our text, and I've got about five or ten minutes to shut it down here. <clears throat> In verse 14, it mentions that we are to be Subject, verse 14, as unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, that's the king, for the punishment of evildoers. And I mentioned that word earlier, it's in verse 12. Peter says in verse 12 that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, are looking at believers and saying, evildoers. And here Peter circles around and he says that Kings and governors are, are, are there to punish evildoers. What does he mean by that? In Romans chapter 13, Paul says that we should obey magistrates, and he says that to resist them is to bring damnation, is the word that's used in the King James Version. That's a really strong term. But both Peter and Paul did not obey the mandates. Were they damned? I think you would have a hard time proving it. They resisted to the point of death. They gave their lives not doing what the government required at that point. And so the principle, again, in general, I think we should obey man until obeying makes you disobey God. And then you must obey God rather than men. And when you disobey, you must be willing to accept the consequences. The text here in verse 13 and verse 15 also tells us that some of the purpose of submission to government. It says, for the Lord's sake, in verse 13. And it is the will of God, in verse 15. That by doing good, you can put the silence to ignorance of foolish men. And I'm not exactly sure I didn't really identify who the foolish men are. I think he's probably talking about people who disagree with the Christians. I, I, I just find it interesting that Peter mentions that. <clears throat> I want you to notice that the text here never says that we are to like our government. It does not say that we agree with them. It does not in any way imply that we like their policies or agree with their policies. But there's a higher purpose, and that is we need to think about how God thinks about it. And in verse 16, there's a very interesting, um, again, very interesting wording. It says, as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. What does he mean? I, I think an understanding of freedom is to understand that our governors, our government is not God. They are under God. 
And even though we are, have a responsibility to them, there is a sense where we are free. We're, we're in some ways more responsible, or we are more responsible to God than to them. Even though we have a responsibility to be model citizens, according to this scripture, there is a higher law that we're responsible to, and that's God. And that gives us a level of freedom. We understand that they are temporary, that their laws are temporary. They are not forever laws. We understand that they are temporal, that the leaders themselves will pass, and that we will pass, and that one day we will be in the presence of God where we'll be free. Sort of seems like that's what he's saying. But he, he balances that, and he says, don't use your liberty to be malicious. That's not a word that we use very often. Malice simply means that we are mean with intent to be mean. Where we, it's sort of like a computer virus that's made to mess up your computer. Or it's like a credit card scam that's put into motion so that they can steal from you. Steal your identity, steal your funding, or whatever it is. Malice has the idea of doing it with intent, being mean for the purpose of being mean. So we should live like free men, like free, but we should not confuse that liberty as a right to allow us to be mean. And in verse 17, let me just say in relation to that, William Barclay um, was a popular and well-known teacher in his time. He's been gone for a long time, and he correctly said, and it's been oft quoted, he said, Christian freedom does not mean that we are free to do as we please, but it means that we're free to do as we ought. I, I think that's correct. I think that living as free people means that we should live with an attitude of optimism. I think we should live with a spirit of excitement about our lives. I think we should be eager for what's next. I think we should seek to, be, to better and improve the situation that we're in. Our culture is full of this. We have lots of opportunistic and entrepreneurial sort of people in our midst. They're constantly looking ahead for what's next and how to do better and how to preserve what we have so that our children have a wonderful place to live. I think, I think uh, I'm a fan. I, I, I back it. I think that's how we should live. But we should not use that spirit to inflict harm on those around us. I think the key is to have a settled understanding that we are servants of God. And he sums up this statement or this subject in verse 17 by giving us four bullet points. A summary of submission. And it's actually sort of a summary of the entire section starting from uh, chapter 2, verse 12, to all the way to chapter 3, verse 12, uh, spanning parts of two chapters here. He, he gives a summary. It's like a mission statement, summarizing all of the teaching that he's given. Four short statements. Honor all men. That means honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. The first one, honor all. Honor everyone. Respect human beings. Whether you hate them or they hate you, whether they practice a certain lifestyle that is in opposition to yours, to what you feel is right, respect them for who they are. Respect others. Honor others. Honor everyone as a person that's made in the image of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we are to mindlessly tolerate any or all behavior that is unscriptural, that is abhorrent to God's commands. I'm not saying that at all. But the individual person, himself or herself, is to be honored. Secondly, he says, love the brotherhood. Who is the brotherhood? It's us. For those of us at Weavertown, it's, it's us. It's the local church, I think. It's the people that you worship with. Uh, 
Fear God is the third. Fear in this context does not mean a crouching sort of fear. It means that there we have a reverential awe. And that awe dominates our lives, our lives, our choices. The realization of who God is and who we are in relation to Him should completely dominate our minds and our hearts, our thoughts. It should drive our lifestyles. And then he finishes up, we've come full circle. He says, honor the king. Let me just place it in our laps as I close. Be careful how you talk about governing authorities. Be careful of sending those back-of-the-hand things that do not complement, but rather criticize political figures you disagree with. You might disagree with them. I think I do on a lot of things. But whether it's your president, or whether it's your township supervisor, whether it's the police force, they are in a place that calls for them to be prayed for, and they are to be honored. Because they're in a place, if I'm reading the Bible correctly, that God allowed them to be in, that God saw fit for them to be in for the time in which they live. And because of that, I choose to honor them. If you're able, I invite you to kneel for prayer. Lord, our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask for your um, wisdom to fill our lives. And as we um, imbibe this portion of Scripture here this morning, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to follow you and to allow you to the realization of your control to uh, dominate our minds and hearts and our decisions. I pray that you would fill us with wisdom that comes from you. And most of all, Lord, I pray that we would shine as lights in the world so that the people around us could see our testimony and our witness and, and um, either now or in the future um, look at us and say, those are people that I'd like to associate with. And I pray that they would be drawn to Jesus Christ and that our testimony would reflect that. Give us wisdom as we seek to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.